Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 14th. In today's news, new concerns this morning about President Trump's disregard for operational security. Senate Republicans are toying with dragging out an impeachment trial to keep Democratic presidential candidates out of Iowa, and the Trump show continues to disrupt Washington. But first, the big idea. The first day of public impeachment hearings unearthed new evidence potentially implicating Trump more directly in the scheme to center American policy toward Ukraine on political investigations. Bill Taylor, the acting ambassador to Ukraine, testified Wednesday about a previously undisclosed July 26th phone call between Trump and Gordon Sundland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, in which the president asked about the investigations that he had sought into political rivals, namely Joe Biden. The call, overheard by one of Taylor's aides, came just a day after Trump asked for a favor during his conversation with Ukraine's new leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. Taylor explained it this way up on Capitol Hill. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. Investigators have scheduled a closed-door deposition of that staffer, whose name is David Holmes, for this Friday. That's the same day that ousted Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch will also testify in an open session. Sondland's attorney says his client will address Taylor's account when he testifies before Congress next Wednesday, declining to comment further. At the White House, Trump said he has no recollection whatsoever of the call and added that he hardly knows Sondland a mega-donor who got the Plum ambassadorship after contributing a million dollars to Trump's inauguration. Taylor's testimony about the call was one of the few new revelations during a six-hour impeachment hearing that ended with Democrats and Republicans more firmly entrenched behind their established battle lines. But it brought to life many things we've only read about from transcripts of depositions. While the testimony of Taylor and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent presented a damning public account of a president using his office to advance his personal and political interests, Republican lawmakers remained steadfast in defending Trump as he faces his greatest political threat yet. Several pushed to hear from the anonymous whistleblower, whose report documenting concerns about Trump's alleged wrongdoing toward Ukraine ultimately led to this impeachment probe. Democrats voted down the GOP attempt to question the whistleblower, whose allegations have subsequently been corroborated by witnesses like Taylor and Kent. Taylor, a decorated Vietnam War veteran who finished number five in his class at West Point, received the bulk of Democratic questioning, speaking in a slow and serious manner. Many viewers thought he sounded like Walter Cronkite. As he described his concern that Trump and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, had placed their political concerns ahead of the United States' national security interests. Republican lawmakers countered that Trump shouldn't be impeached because he eventually released his freeze on the military assistance and met face-to-face with Zelensky without Ukraine announcing the investigations he had requested into the Bidens and the 2016 election. 
But the aid was only released on September 11th, after Congress was informed about the whistleblower's report and started making hay of it. Republicans also described the witnesses as unelected bureaucrats with no direct information about Trump's intentions. They emphasized that neither Kent nor Taylor met or spoken with Trump. Democrats pushed back against that argument, pointing out that the White House has blocked testimony from key witnesses who have firsthand information, including Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton, and is refusing to turn over key evidence, specifically documents, that would help illuminate the case. Overall, Democrats said the hearing bolstered their case that Trump abused his power, validating their strategy of relying on credible and experienced diplomats to shine a spotlight on alleged wrongdoing in the Oval Office. Both Taylor and Kent repeatedly contradicted key GOP defenses as Republicans sought ways to stand up for Trump. In one exchange with Jim Himes, a Democrat from Connecticut, Kent testified that Trump's request that Ukraine investigate the Bidens was not a coordinated anti-corruption strategy that fell in line with a years-long U.S. effort to reduce corruption in that country. At another point, Eric Swalwell, a congressman from California, asked Kent whether it was true, as Mulvaney has said, Mick Mulvaney, the White House chief of staff, that quid pro quos happen in foreign policy all the time. Kent said that's not true. Both of the witnesses also said they're not never-Trumpers. Kent also contradicted the GOP suggestion that Ukraine may have interfered in the U.S. election in 2016, something Republicans have been floating for why Trump pushed for such investigations. Republicans, meanwhile, defended the president with a strategy that at times seemed scattershot and disorganized. The party's most dogged defender, Jim Jordan from Ohio, didn't get a chance to speak until nearly four hours into the hearing, leaving it to House Intelligence Committee ranking Republican Devin Nunes from California to lead the defense of Trump. Republican counsel, the lawyer for the committee, Stephen Castor, also got off to a slow start as he tried to get the witnesses to testify that Ukraine has a corruption problem. Kent and Taylor agreed to that, but didn't link Trump's specific efforts targeting the Bidens to any kind of strategy of combating corruption more broadly. GOP commentators on Twitter criticized Castor, the GOP lawyer, saying it was unclear whether he was going what he was trying to accomplish with his questions. At one point in maybe the funniest moment of the afternoon, Castor sought to play down conversations with Ukraine that took place outside the normal State Department channels of communication, saying they could have been more abnormal than they were. Taylor noted that Sunland's portfolio as EU ambassador does not actually include Ukraine. It's not part of his job. He put it this way. It's a little unusual for the U.S. ambassador to the EU to play a role uh, in Ukraine policy. Okay. And, you know, it might be irregular, but it's certainly not outlandish. Taylor paused for a while when Castor said that, and then he replied that he agrees it's not as outlandish as it could be. It can always be more outlandish. When you think about it, it's not as outlandish as it could be is a pretty remarkable defense strategy. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. Current and former U.S. security officials are flabbergasted that Sunland and Trump had that phone call that we learned about yesterday at a Kiev restaurant over an unsecured line. They're telling us that an ambassador talking to the president by cell phone from a restaurant in the capital of Ukraine wasn't just highly unusual, but also a stunning breach of security, exposing the conversation to certain surveillance by foreign intelligence services, including Russia's. Larry Pfeiffer, a former senior director of the White House Situation Room and a former chief of staff to the CIA director, said that in a country that's as wired with Russian intelligence, you can take it to the bank that the Russians were listening in on that phone call. 
That means the Kremlin, which is waging an ongoing war against Ukraine in the east and occupying Crimea, which belongs to Ukraine, almost certainly knew that the U.S. was withholding security assistance from Ukraine, which would have given them added leverage, especially in negotiations over the fate of the east. Russia already has shown its ability to monitor U.S. diplomats' calls in Kiev, and the Kremlin has no hesitation in leaking them when it suits its interest. In early 2014, for example, an intercepted phone call between then Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs Victoria Newland and then U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Joffrey Pyatt appeared on YouTube. On the call, Newland was heard referring dismissively and with profanity to slow-moving European Union efforts to address a looming political and economic crisis in Ukraine. She was also heard assessing the political skills of various opposition figures in Ukraine with unusual candor, being dismissive of some. The leaked call was embarrassing to Washington, and it was clearly part of an effort by Moscow to drive a wedge between the U.S. and the EU. The State Department acknowledged the call was authentic, and Newland profusely apologized to EU officials. Calling a president from a cell phone violates strict protocols that are set up to protect senior administration officials' communications. A senior U.S. intelligence official says it's indicative of a lack of concern for operational security that Trump has exhibited throughout his presidency. You might remember back in 2017 at his Mar-a-Lago club in Palm Beach on an open terrace in full view of other diners, Trump and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe had a sensitive discussion about how to respond to a ballistic missile test by North Korea. Also, Trump is known for his unorthodox cell phone use. He's been known to give out his personal cell phone number to other world leaders, despite warnings from aides that his cell phone calls aren't secure. And it has been widely reported that Russia and China have targeted his personal cell phone to intercept his communications. Number two, some Republican senators and their advisors are privately discussing whether to pressure GOP leaders to stage a lengthy impeachment trial beginning in January in order to scramble the Democratic presidential race, potentially keeping six contenders in Washington until the eve of the Iowa caucuses or maybe longer. Those conversations about the timing and the framework for a trial remain fluid and closely held, according to more than a dozen participants in the discussions who talked to us. But the deliberations come as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell faces pressure from conservative activists to swat back at Democrats as impeachment hearings begin in the House. The discussions raise a potential hazard for those six Democratic senators who are trying to get to the White House. They have all previously planned on a final sprint out of Washington before the February 3rd Iowa caucuses and the February 11th New Hampshire primary. But now they're already starting to move their schedules around, trying to pull fundraisers up from January into December and teeing up other key appearances, assuming that they'll be forced to stay in Washington for much of the month of January. John Cornyn, a Senator Republican from Texas, McConnell ally, former whip, said that a Senate trial would probably last five or six weeks. He joked that this could be helpful for Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, but hurt Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Now, there's an emerging divide among Republicans, too, over timing. Some want a lengthy trial. They want to defend Trump. They want to create problems for Democrats. But others want a swift dismissal and a final vote. A group of Senate Republicans who are up for re-election next year, led by Susan Collins in Maine, has been telling McConnell and other colleagues that they don't want the process to be rushed because they worry that any move to quickly dispense with the trial risks giving their Democratic opponents an opening to say they didn't take their duties seriously. Number three, day one of the impeachment hearings was a classic Washington moment. 
But like virtually everything else in Washington over the past three years, even without the president in the room, it was another episode of The Trump Show. It reflected the transformation of the U.S. government into a long-running drama about one outsized personality. Even as the hearing's spotlight stayed fixed on Trump, his phone calls, his policy shifts, his quest to find usable dirt about Biden, the possible removal of the president seemed to lack the potency and the gravity of previous impeachments. Committee members largely steered clear of the kind of dark oratory that launched impeachment debates in 1973 and 1998, when the possible removal of Richard Nixon and then Bill Clinton occasioned speeches about the country's perilous politics and damaged psyche. Trump's remarkable ability to skate through crises that wreck other people's lives, the bankruptcies of his businesses, abandoned projects, divorces, accusations of sexual misconduct, seemed again to be at work yet again. The president's defenders in politics and the media projected a determined nothing-to-see-here vibe. Breitbart News, the dependably pro-Trump site, dubbed the proceedings boring. That's the same term that the White House press secretary deployed. The stylistic contrast between what was on Fox News in primetime and what the witnesses were actually saying spoke volumes about the changes that Trump has brought to Washington. This president promised to disrupt American government, and here testifying were wooly men with decades of diplomatic experience talking about policy and principle in long, elegant sentences, explaining how Ukraine fits in with nearly 250 years of American cooperation with foreign allies to promote democracy. The contrast could be characterized as serious policy discussion versus lurid tabloid talk, or it could also be characterized as deep state defensiveness versus plain speaking. Which lens voters choose may guide their decision about whom to vote for next year as president. Public opinion hasn't settled into any kind of consensus about whether Trump's call with Zelensky was a big deal or not. A CBS News poll released the day before yesterday asked Americans whether Trump's dealings with Ukraine were typical of how presidents work with foreign countries. 40% said they were. It's the kind of thing most presidents probably do, they said. The other 60% said Trump acted in a way that, quote, few or no other presidents have. There was another interesting data point yesterday. On Google, searches for the term impeachment topped the trending charts for almost the entire day. But the volume of people who were actually searching for the word impeachment didn't come close to the leading search term from Tuesday, the day before. Far more Americans looked for information regarding Sonic the Hedgehog, the video game character who's getting his own adventure movie next year, than wanted to learn about impeachment. And that's... The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 14th. Thanks for listening, and thank you for caring more about the future of our republic than Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>